Hello, listeners. I'm Zeb Wells, and this is a special episode of Power of X-Men. During the whole making of X-Men and the casting of X-Men, I was there in the production office. Remember, you don't need to scream for help when Banshees are around. Was it supposed to be Jean, or was it supposed to be Madeline? I drew that image and a deliberate hint at things to come. What makes Marvel Legends so special? Just the partnership with Marvel, you know, continuing to work with Jesse Falcon. This is your special guest host, Mr. Sinister. <laughs> you, know, you would never put Storm in a ponytail. That would be well, weird. You could, but it that would be weird. <laughs> but giving it to Jean kind of made her the girl next door that everybody could talk to. When I met Stan, he was very gracious and, and, and very kind. This is the Power of X-Men podcast. I am your host, Dayspring. Hope you survived the experience. We have a very special guest with us today. He is an Emmy Award-winning writer for his work on Robot Chicken. He's, of course, beloved in the X community for his legendary New Mutants run, as well as his current run on Hellions. He's the reason I am obsessed with Doug Ramsey, and I am just so thrilled to welcome Mr. Zeb Wells to the show. Zeb, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. It's great to be talking to you. I literally have heart eyes right now, Zeb. I recommend your New Mutants run all the time. And I was over the moon when it was announced you would be back for Dawn of X because I love your writing so much. You are one of my uh, favorite writers. Thank you so much. I That run of New Mutants is one of the things that I think turned out the best. <laughs> you know, like I'm actually... legitimately proud of that. I think that we just found a good emotional ending. And I really liked giving some sort of closure to Ileana and that long, like like that long drawn out Arab trauma she had around that like childhood, uh, that truly terrible childhood she had in hell. It was fun to like think that like that was like a way to bring a little bit of healing to that character while leaning into that trauma and also having her be sort of scary and a badass. Zeb Wells, I love hearing you talk, but Zeb Wells, why is Madeline Pryor dead? <laughs> oh, wow. That, now I want you to know that, <laughs> Sorry. that hurt me. That hurt me just as bad as it hurts anyone else. I was not, <laughs> I was not uh, chipping away on the keyboard laughing <laughs> as I did that. That was very painful for me. But it it felt like that had to happen to honor sort of the big ideas around that character, like what that character had been through and sort of that character's story is not one of triumph. It's more like a, that whole character arc is kind of a scar on the X-Men's psyche because she was treated so badly and didn't get a fair shake. It just felt weird to have her get a fair shake uh, bringing her back in, in this context now uh, i won't say one way or the other uh you know it's krakoa now no one's story is necessarily over but that's how it felt that needed to end but it hurt me what was some of the twitter reactions you got <laughs> Because, I mean, I was probably one of them, you know, with the hashtag justice for Maddie or crying emojis all over my feed. 
Well, I loved all of it. I really did. And what kind of blew me away about it is I don't think any of it was like all of the anger was towards Scott or the quiet council. It didn't seem like any of it came to me, me, which I was expecting. I thought (laughs) people would be mad at me, which, which to me proves that people kind of understood it or understood how it was organically part of her story, even though it was upset. So if I had read that story, I would be tweeting the same things, but I was sort of relieved and happy that none of the pure hatred was coming towards me. Like people were upset, but it didn't seem like anyone thought that the writing was bad, which made, which <laughs> made me very happy. No, Zeb, you did such a great job with writing that first arc. And, and your writing historically is always very tight. I mean, you're an Emmy award-winning writer, okay? Right. So, <laughs> but I think what you did is incite a lot of passion for fans. Yeah. Absolutely right. When we're there in that scene where Havoc is sort of outside and Alex comes out, or excuse me, when Scott comes out and he's here like, oh, you know, we voted... It, it's more about the situation. And I remember I was on a salty thread with some of the other ex-podcasters. And we were like, oh, you know, Gina and Emma were like, nope, we are not bringing her back. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I, and I wanted people to be suspicious of that decision. Like, I don't think people should take that decision at face value. Obviously, they said, you know, well, we can't resurrect clones. You know, that may or may not be true. Obviously, you're in a room with Emma and Jean and Scott and he's talking about his ex-wife and and surely Scott has a lot of shame around that situation like that doesn't make him look good and I'm just sure that there was a lot of stuff in that stew and that's what I thought was important that it happened off panel yeah so that people would have questions about it and sort of fill in the blanks about what was going on back there so that that's great to hear was it your decision to have that clone rule or was that an editorial Hickman rule that would just happen to get fleshed out in your story? There is a lot of discussion behind the scenes about how that works with, with a, a timeline like the X-Men's, which is full of uh, copies of people, other, you know, characters from other dimensions and, you know what? I think I might have even messed up there because I think the rule as discussed was like you couldn't have doubles of, you know, you yeah. can't have doubles of characters like or characters from a different timeline, mm-hmm. uh, clo- you know, um, um, resurrections of the same character. And I might have like worded it poorly. When I said you did not. Which, which set up like like a massive firestorm because people are like, well, what about the, the cuckoos and what about you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, but, but I think it was all good discussion. And it, it, these are the same, which makes it so exciting to be working on the X-Men right now is that there are always discussions like that going through. But once I had put it out in that book, you know, like Leah's on X-Factor and a, a lot of her job is, is sort of solidifying those rules. So she's taken that and run with it. And um, I've seen her and Vita like really picking that rule apart and trying to, to make it solid and concrete. So it's all it's all being discussed at the highest levels, I guess. 
Yeah, no, I I don't want to dwell on this too much because this could be a Madeline Pryor podcast. <laughs> I have her right there. I put her there. Oh, that's so cool. But no, I think what you did was incite a conversation amongst fans and how these yeah. are. And I think what's so great about this new era, the Dawn of X, the Reign of X era, is that there's so much world building and conversations are happening about the X-Men. These stories aren't just, they get published and you forget about them. You can actually marinate on them. And a character like Maddie has so much rich philosophical questions already baked into her history that now this is just another chapter, hopefully. Totally. (laughs) Just not an end. Yeah. And one of the things that really drew me to, uh, the Dawn of X stuff and and Hickman's writing on House of X, Powers of X was his willingness to have uncomfortable situations and have no easy answers. He's he's comfortable with having characters on both sides of an issue being right and asking questions. You know, obviously there are things that the council did, have done that are shady from one perspective but might be good for the, for the long-term health of mutants. And one of the things that was, that I thought was really compelling was I think X-Men were always made palatable because they were superior, but they also said, well, we're going to fight and protect for this world that despises us. And then in this new version, the world that despises us is being ignored. They're kind (laughs) of like, no, we're going to, we're no longer going to protect you guys. We're going to protect ourselves. And there's something scary and dangerous about that, um, that the whole line sort of leans into, which, I, which I'm really finding compelling. Absolutely. And I think the mutant metaphor has morphed so much since Hickman's era. But I want to kind of go back on what you were saying, because I think that original metaphor of protecting a world that fears and hates you is a reason why a lot of us fell in love with the X-Men. And Mm -hmm. so I'm curious about you. What was the first memory you have of the X-Men or your first exposure to them? Man, it might've been in, it was probably it's in Spider-Man and his amazing friends. There was that one episode where he meets the X-Men. Yes. And after that, you kind of wished he would meet the X-Men every episode because it was just so fun to see them. And then that Iceman, you know, was an X-Men who was in Spider-Man and his amazing friends, who I always loved. I thought his powers were so cool. And then when I started getting back into comics, I think it was like right before Inferno hit was when I was really started buying and reading comics. And by that point, they were just, there was just so much going on in every issue of X-Men. And even if I read, if I read those issues now with my adult eyes, it's almost like there was too much going on. It's, it's mm-hmm. like there's so much mythology, but it never bumped me as a kid. You just, you knew that there was a massive world. Every, you knew that these characters had relationships that went back decades and you just wanted to know everything about them. You literally articulated why I love the X-Men so much. And my era was the mid-90s with Joe Mad and Onslaught. Uh-huh. And that, I always say, what I loved about the X-Men 
You had to pull mm-hmm. that thread because you saw, you know, Storm there. You saw Nate, Gray, and you were curious about those characters. But at the time, you didn't have the gift. The kids today have like it's so easy because they can just go onto Wikipedia, type in Storm, Nate, whatever, and get their whole history. We had to go to the comic book store. Yeah, and we had to look up. You know. <laughs> yeah, and. And A, you had to hope that they had the issues you were looking for. Yeah. Then you had to hope you could afford them. Mm-hmm. And you had to like put it together yourself. And so you were kind of, it turned us all into little archaeologists, you know, who were, Absolutely. were trying to get funding for our digs. <laughs> and then we would go to our digs and, and unearth this stuff. And it made it all so special. It's funny that you said that because with the podcast, we have an Instagram and it's a very engaging Instagram. And people are always like, oh, you guys post so fast. And it's so easy because all you have to do now is just go to your Marvel Comics app, take a screenshot of whatever you want. I used to work at Wizard Magazine back in 2007. And wow, there, was that towards the end? Of that the... was towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. So I didn't really have the opportunity to go on the internet and find images. If I was doing an article on like Green Goblin, I had to go to our archive room. I had to know which Spider-Man books to find. They weren't organized. I had to find the issue, flag them and give them to our production team. And can wow. you imagine doing that today? It would Yeah, be- but it made, but it did. It made it all feel like the information was a little more valuable. Yeah, because you had to go out and seek it. And then if you didn't find it, 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 it made the myth of this of these stories even bigger in your head, you know? And I noticed that like when I started doing research for New Mutants, because I went back on New Mutants and I read, you know, just everything, everything that I could, which I didn't do when I was younger. So you you read these stories that you've been hearing about for like 20 years and there's something so... and. It, Sometimes they're much smaller stories than you thought they would be in your head, or sometimes they're, they're a bigger deal. And it's just a really cool situation. Oh, I agree so much with that because the only thing I had about Inferno when I was growing up was a little Fleer Ultra card uh-huh. that just gave me a paragraph summary of Inferno. And it wasn't until you know I got older and I sought out the trade paperback and read it. I mean, that, that run in particular, excuse me, that crossover in particular is very rich and a lot is happening there. But yeah. they're, a good source for me, and I don't know if you've ever used them, is uncannyxmen.net. I must have. They're I great. must have. They actually yeah. list everything with like photos and everything. But okay, wait. So I want to know who is your favorite X Man. I hate to be this basic, but it's got to be Wolverine. Oh no, I, you're not basic at all. <laughs> Wolverine and then Ileana as a close second because I I think trauma is so interesting and it and it shows itself in so many ways and it's hard to find a more traumatized character than Wolverine. <laughs> like he's so. He's so messed up because he's kind of seen lifetimes of it before. Yeah. Have you written Wolverine? I have written Wolverine in Spider-Man comics. Gotcha. But I do think Wolverine makes a fantastic guest star because oh, yeah. he, you know, you can play him as the wild card. You can play him as someone that, you know, they're trying to contain you never quite know how Wolverine's going to react to a situation because he can be so violent, but he, you can also catch him on a day where he's really bummed about how violent he is. And he <laughs> be violent. There's a lot of flavors to him. I wrote a story with him with a, it was a Spider-Man short where he invited Spider-Man out to a bar and 
they just have like a, a nice night and they get into a fight and whatnot. And then it, it's revealed that it's Wolverine's birthday. Oh. Um, and he wants to spend, he wanted to spend it with Spider-Man because Spider-Man hasn't spent enough time with him to know that he's like a killer. And like, there's all this blood on his hands. Oh. Spider-Man still sees the best in him. So he just wanted to be with someone who didn't know that he was a killer uh, for his birthday. It was kind of a sweet little tale. I love that. And, you know, talking to you now, I'm slowly like realizing a lot of your work does deal with trauma. And I think you do such a great job of rendering that on the page. I'm thinking, and I told you this when we were emailing, I love that scene with Hope saying, win first, cry later. Uh-huh, and yeah, then yeah. even in the most recent issue of Hellions, we see them in their own virtual realities and sort of the, the traumas they've endured and how it profoundly affects them. And you do such an amazing job of rendering that pathos. Yeah, I think I am just fascinated with that stuff. And I do think writing in general has just been a very valuable way for me to uh, poke at my own feelings about things and poke at what I think or um, or like process my own trauma, you know, and process. Yeah. I, I think that it's interesting for the first 15 years of my writing career, it was just, it, I, was, I was such a procrastinator and it, like it was very tortured process of writing. Mm-hmm. And my therapist now says that he he thinks that when you sit down and write, there's there's really nowhere to hide from your feelings. It all like comes up. Yeah. And I think that for a long time, you know, me sitting down and, tr- and trying to write and getting so upset was was the process. Well, my body basically begging me to deal with my own stuff. And so I think it's all connected. Like I'm really attracted to that stuff. And it's all my brain trying to figure out just how hard it is to be a human being sometimes. Cause I, I do think it's hard for everybody and we all have our traumas that we have to, to deal with at some point. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm kind of mesmerized with what you're saying and I'm actually writing a memoir and I'm, uh-huh. I'm shopping around with my agent right now. And it's all about intergenerational trauma and the trauma we mm-hmm. inherit from our parents. Yeah. And, I have procrastinated on it so much to the point that some bits of the it's an, it's not fiction, obviously. So some parts of the proposal feel don't feel really fleshed out. And a lot of editors have called me out on that uh-huh. and it's because it's so painful to sit down and yes. like really dig deep there and not only dig deep and unearth those emotions, but then find a way to spin it into a narrative. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's just not good at all. Yeah. It's kind of, you're going to be forced to look at that stuff. And yeah. I think writing in general, if you're doing it well, you're being, you're in a state of vulnerability as yeah. you're writing because you're trying to get down to the real stuff. And I, and I, you know, I just, you know, for so many years, it's like, oh, I'm a procrastinator. Oh, I'm a procrastinator. And then it's like, oh, no, you have horrific trauma. That you need. <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry. I don't mean and, to laugh for that. No, it's, it's funny. It's like, no, oh, you have a bunch of feelings that you really don't want to feel. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a great way. Thank you for. I could have used you in my writing programs. That is a wonderful <laughs> way of putting that. And I have some really great writing mentors, but no one has ever articulated kind of like how you did it. Uh, just yeah. Now. So so I would just say like really pay attention to how you feel when you don't want to write. And a lot of times there's like some really scary feelings under there. Like there's you know it's it's interesting. Oh, the more you become aware of it, the more you can like uh, game it and sort of work with it instead of uh, working under it. I got you. Well, okay. So back to X-Men. Okay. Back to the fun stuff. Back to the fun stuff. Which is your favorite X-Men crossover? Well, I mean, I, I think it doesn't matter what I say because objectively the work says that I'm obsessed with Inferno, which I think <laughs> I must be, which is, it's just so weird because I went back to reread it, as I said, when I was researching New Mutants and it was really hard for me to follow. Like there was a lot, there was so much going on in that crossover. And, you know, you could tell that, that, the, that the writers were working really hard, but they were sort of figuring out this, the big crossover thing. And, you know, rereading it, I didn't find it the most satisfying story, but when something gets to you at that impressionable age, it feel the feelings around it are so strong. And the iconography of that crossover and the big themes that are underneath everything seems so strong to me that I just feel like I keep getting drawn back to it. Like I can't get Madeline Pryor out of my head. I can't get the demonic New York out of my head. Like that big, that big, uh, the Empire State Building that was yeah. growing like uh, miles above the city, all of that stuff just got me at the right age. And it's deep, deep into my subconscious now. Havoc in his Goblin Prince outfit. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. You know, just reading that as like a 10 year old being like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yep, yep, sure. Yep. <laughs> so speaking of you as a 10 year old, when you were a little Zeb, I know you said in another interview, you used to flip through the channels and you would stop when you saw things like Super Friends or Spider-Man and his amazing friends because you were so enchanted by superheroes, their colors and how flamboyant they are. Was it that love for superheroes that sparked your passion for writing? I, I think it must have... It must, I don't, it, it's so strange what, what draws you in when you're a kid, but you know, you're, especially like you grow up in like the, the early eighties and, you know, even just the style of homes back, it's all very drab and brown. Oh and, yeah. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? And like fall colors, it's just very fall colors. And <laughs> Where did you grow up? Grew up in Manhattan, Kansas, and then moved in third grade to Littleton, Colorado. So grew up, did most of my growing up in Colorado. Oh, that's right. I actually, my dad was, I'm a first generation American. My dad went to law school in Kansas City, Kansas and popped me oh, out there. But then I- That's where up, my mom's from. Oh, dope. Uh, four months later, then they moved to Miami and I'm okay. you know, okay. from Miami. But anyways, I'm sorry to, to cut you off. Continue. Yeah. And just with everything being that drab, those little dashes of color, you know, they were just important. They just felt good. So seeing those superhero cartoons, finding old Spider-Man comics. I, I think it just wired my brain to say that that's the fun stuff. That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the good stuff over there. And I remember when we started writing in first grade, 
and I remember it because I think it felt so good, but we were all writing stories and I don't know why, but I, in my story, I was taking a walk and I ran into a giant squid and I don't know wh why I thought of that or where that came from. I'm sure there was some reason, but when I read it to the class, they all just burst out laughing. Um, and I don't think I was even trying to be funny. You know, I was just writing something and that felt so good, you know, yeah. that. I think that's where I realized that like writing was a way I could express myself that, that people enjoyed, or you could get that hit of, of validation. Yeah. I, I love that. Sometimes you're just born with a talent and it just comes out. And in moments like that, you weren't trying to be funny. You just wrote. A no. story. <laughs> yeah. That must've felt like a really great reaction though. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I mean, I still remember it. It was, it felt so good. It, and then I, and then that, that seemed to like happen. You know, I just remember times where, where I would say something or, or write something and you get people and people start laughing and they're not laughing at you. They think it's funny, but you weren't necessarily trying to be funny. And you're, and then, and then at a certain point you're just like, Oh, well maybe there's something about my voice or my writing that people like, and it just starts drawing you in that direction. When I used to work in publishing, one of my authors was David Sedaris. And mm. when he was doing his lecture series, he'd have his story in front of him and he'd draw a little skull if the audience did not react to where he was meaning to react, but then he'd check mark the parts where people were reacting to. Yeah, it's, it's cool to have a discipline or a craft where you can get that type of feedback where... Yeah. There's no, there's no BSing you, you know, oh, did the, you can tell when someone's reacting to it or not. Yeah. And that's, that's good feedback to get. That's where, uh, you know, as comic book writers, you have to get your feedback where you can, because you're kind of by yourself all this time. Oh. Well, that's, that's where, where it's good to have an editor or whatnot, but that's why I do, I, you do, I did struggle with comic book writing and I would bounce kind of back and forth between TV and comic books because the TV is more of a social thing. Yeah. You get a lot more feedback, even just a writer's room. You get to see the look on people's faces as you're saying something. Um, and where with the comic book writing, there were times where I could just, I could just get in, get in uh, a spot. I could just start spiraling because I didn't know if what I was doing was good or not. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and before you know it, you, you, you burned a week and then you end up writing the whole thing in a couple of days and you don't know what's good, what's up, what's down. Uh, basically what I'm trying to say is comic book writing will murder you if you don't <laughs> discipline yourself. That, that's what I'm, you know, I, I, I was, tr I was working on my pro inefficiently trying to find my process and my discipline. And that's what finally allowed me to do this and not drive myself crazy. Well, I think it's safe to say a lot of your work has landed with fans. <laughs> So my, my next question is, you're reading all of these comic books growing up. As an adult, you're revisiting them. Is there a particular, is there an X writer that inspired you? Is there someone who you're just like, man, look at that work? And obviously a lot of them are great, but was there just one in particular? Uh, wow. Well, when I was growing up, I mean, it, it was Claremont. It was like, oh, it yeah. be, began and ended with Claremont and it was so weird going back he's such an interesting writer because 
uh, going back and researching New Mutants and reading some old X-Men, which I really respect about him, he becomes a different writer depending on what artist he's working with. Like some of this, that Bill Sienkiewicz New Mutant stuff reads completely different than other stuff. Um, and I think that the sheer amount of ideas he jammed into his run of X-Men writers today, we're still to use the archaeology metaphor again, we're still going back and digging up stuff because he was just throwing (laughs) so many ideas at the X-Men. He there's X-Men space stories. There's um, X-Men pirate stories. There's interdimensional stories. So I don't think you can talk about X-Men without Claremont. And then it was obviously very exciting when Grant Morrison came along oh, and yeah. sort of took the next big, what I thought was like a re-contextualization of everything and kind of took everything that came before and said, hey, here's maybe what all that means, you know, and here's a big run. And then I think for the next 20 years, that was being dug into and churned up and sort of the X-Men writers were kind of trying to figure out what all that meant. And then that's why the House of X stuff really, it's a big reason why I got back into writing comics is because I could tell that Hickman was kind of doing that again. Like, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, someone's doing it again. Someone is making a grand statement about X-Men. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be fun wouldn't it be odd? I'm jealous I can't write on that or, or be a part of that. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Maybe I can. Maybe I can. <laughs> I love that archaeology metaphor, though, because mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, especially with Hickman right now. It feels like every issue of his X-Men, he's planting seeds for something new. I've said in the past that kind of frustrates me because I can't keep up with everything. But hearing you kind of delineate the ideology about that and, and how other writers such as yourself can go back and sort of source from yeah, yep. something new. When you went back and reread New Mutants and Inferno and you started writing New Mutants, did you uncover anything perhaps that you didn't either see there before or was planted and never followed through on? Yeah, and I'm sure... I probably, there's probably more than I can remember because I, I, <laughs> it shocks me, but that was almost 10 years ago. I can't believe more. your run was 10 years ago. I know. I honestly I know. cannot believe that. <laughs> I know. It is crazy. It is baffling to me. Yeah. But I know that I, I, I picked up that those Inferno babies had not, <laughs> had not, like they had just disappeared. Like they had been given, <laughs> handed over to the government. Like, hey, here's, yeah. here's some mutant children. <laughs> so that was one that I was like, and that's one where it seemed like even the writers were having trouble keeping track of like how many there were. And I remember like I had charts out, I was trying to like figure out, you know, and and what genders and ethnicities had been designated for the, for the babies. Um, And so that became, and then I loved how that was connected to Ileana. And then there was, and then there was just going to be some way, to connect everything to, you know, again, just give her some sort of journey of healing with something that was connected to the, to the run. And I thought that, that the Inferno babies, even if you didn't remember that story or never read that story, 
you could wrap your mind around that concept <laughs> fairly, fairly early. So, you know, evil government guys got their hands on 10 mutant babies that no one checked in on no. and could basically do whatever they wanted, you know? How did you get to New Mutants? I know Nick Lowe came to you and sort of yeah. said, we want to relaunch New Mutants. And you were like, yes, absolutely. How did you go about establishing that relationship with with Nick and, and how did it come? How did you feel about writing new mutants when it was pitched to you? Yeah, I, man, I cannot remember if I had worked with Nick before or not. I don't think I had, or maybe he was, maybe he went from assistant editor to editor at that mm-hmm. time. Not quite sure, but I think that I like, I never really read new mutants. Cause when I came upon, I did read the Inferno um issues and and you know it just quit and then the Liefeld stuff which I was super into and then it turned into X-Force and but like I said before New Mutants was one of those things that I knew occupied a big headspace in Mm -hmm. the fandom and I knew that that was a big deal and I knew from osmosis how important those characters were and so for me, it was, it, it, I saw it as an opportunity to do a longer run on something and maybe like really make a statement about, show what I could do over more of a longer form. At the same time, not knowing if I could do that. So you, you know, you want to challenge yourself a little bit. Cause I had just put together such a string of like mini series and shorter stories and for me, like my, probably my favorite comic growing up was the Peter David Hulk stuff, which just went on for like so many issues. And so for me, that's part of, or part of being a comic writer that aspired to was like having a big long run on something. So yeah, it was, it was a mixture of, of thinking I had something to offer, really wanting to dig in on those characters. And I just knew that people loved those characters so much. And the last couple of times, they had the new mutants had come back you know you need a time and a place where you can get all those characters back together and i just thought that we could get a, a good number of them back together and see how those characters had grown since they were brought into the school i remember when i saw the preview for your new mutants with Ileana falling through her portal and getting up and she has all the arrows in her uh-huh. Uh-huh. and her saying am i home yet and the other image that just resonated with me as well was Danny backed in a corner and like the doves are flying um, from her. And I just knew from the get go, you had something special there. And it was just so evident that you were such a fan and it was such a pleasure reading that run. And that's why anytime people ask me for recommendations for comics, I'm always like Zeb Wells, New Mutants. And I can oh, remember. Man, that's so cool. I can remember walking from the subway with my husband and we were co- going to our apartment and just talking about your chapters specifically in second coming and how much we enjoyed them and how you nailed that relationship with hope and rogue, for example, like mm-hmm. you just had such a good, I now understand talking to you. You just had a very good sense of pain and trauma and how that sort of built into the DNA of a, of a character. And yeah. It was just so wonderful reading those. Yeah, I loved doing that second coming. And it was kind of similar with the uh, the X of Swords 
issues of Hellions where you sort of get, get, get together with a bunch of people and they kind of do the hard part for you. So it's like, hey, Zeb, your issues, <laughs> your, your issue of Second Coming, this, as far as plot goes, this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen. And it like takes all this pressure off. So then all your, all your brain has to do is say, well, what's the coolest, most character version of this happening? What's the cool, like how can I make these things that I know have to happen as special and fun and reveal as much character as possible? And I think that's, that's the fun part of writing. It's like, you try to make your plot as fun as possible, but then when you get down to actually write the pages, it's all about like, what's, what's the most emotionally true, most fun, most novel way of getting this information across? Wait, so I wanna, I wanna trace your history here with the, with the X office. So you did your New Mutants run. And you're you're done. Did you want to come back? Was was the door open for you to come back? Um, so what after New Mutants, I did a little. What did I do? I did um, Spider Man mm-hmm. or the the Joe Matarera Spider Man, maybe. But then there came a point where I started doing more work at at Robot Chicken, which was a mm-hmm. show I started working on and started directing on. And again, like I. I had not figured out my comic book process. I had not figured out how to not drive myself miserable writing. (laughs) And at some point, you know, my wife was like, you can't keep doing, you can't do both of these things. You know, it's like, it's, it's too, it's too much. And I I was glad she did because that allowed me to focus on the TV stuff. And then uh, my wife, I, I, my show, and then I ended up doing a show called Super Mansion. So basically yeah. TV and animation kind of took all of my time for like four to four to five years. And then my show ended, I was kind of uh, adrift at sea. My wife got cast on SNL. So we moved to New York and then Nick Lowe showed up <laughs> like Nosferatu around the corner. I was like, Hey, Zeb, come have lunch. <laughs> you know, you know, you could do five page Spider-Man story if you wanted or 10 pages. And I, I was like, and you know, I had sworn off comics, not because I didn't love comics. I could not love comics more, but I, I just felt like when I was writing them, I was always late. I was always like procrastinating. Uh-huh. I just couldn't make it work in my life. But Nick, you know, Nick was like, Hey, I, I you know, come on. And then when I, and I had done a lot of work on myself in that time. And then when I sat down to start doing the stuff that Nick was giving me, I was like, oh my God, I think I have this figured out. I, I love this. And those, so that led to the Spider-Ham miniseries <laughs> that led to the Ant-Man miniseries, which led to me being invited to one of these Marvel writers retreats. Um, but then Hickman was there. So... I, during that retreat, I think like during one of the breaks, I just beeline towards him. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I know you've got your X-Men, uh, your X-Men summit next week. You know, if you wanted an extra <laughs> set of hands at that. And he was like, I love well, that you invite it yourself. <laughs> I totally, and he was like, uh, no, that's, that, you know, that does not really how that works. But if you want to, <laughs> If you want to write something for the X office, you know, I'd love to hear your ideas. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And, and then, so he, he ended up calling a couple of weeks later, we talked and I, and I was, you know, that was 
it kind of felt good to me that I like was the initiator of getting Hellions, you know, and, and what I liked about Hellions was that I was such a fan of what Hickman and those other writers were doing that I knew that if I got Hellions, I had to bring my A game. Like I would have to do the best work that I was capable of just to not look like a complete jackass against what everyone else was doing. You know, I, I think House of X and Powers of X, I know it's gotten a lot of praise. I don't know if, <laughs> if people realize just how good that is, like how hard what he did was to do that level of table setting while telling a story that holds together while telling a story that emotionally holds together and has an emotional arc. I, I, I'm just such a fan. Zeb, I am gay boy first, and I am obsessed with your wife, by the way, <laughs> with <laughs> Heidi Gardner. How is it being Mr. Heidi Gardner? I love it. You know, it's, I'm so proud of her first. Like, I'm such a fan of hers. When I met her and when we got married, she was a hairdresser. She was doing hairdressing and I was just such a fan of hers. And I thought, Oh, think that I married one of the funniest people on the planet. Like, but, but she wants to be a hairdresser. Maybe it's, you know, it must be because I love her so much or I'm just so into her, but I think that she's so funny. And then she's, and then suddenly she was taking improv classes and then she just kept excelling. And now she's on Saturday night live. It's so, it's so cool. And I love that sketch with them at the psychic uh, reading. Yeah. And they're like, oh, this has been such a terrible year. 2019. Goodbye. Hello, 2020. <laughs> yeah. like, her reaction when she was sitting there and they were talking about the father. I just genius. My husband yeah. and I literally laughing the entire time. So I just want you to know that's on repeat in our house. Love like, that. We're big stands of you guys, I didn't even know I was a stand of you couple until like <laughs> I realized you guys were married, but going back to the X-Men, what, so you pitched Hellions to Hickman. So you handpicked the characters you wanted, or were you sort of been like, okay, but here are the characters you need to do that with. Well, it was a, it was a mixture of both because you know, like I, I didn't get there at the beginning, you know, I got there when there were already like a, a good number of team books that were going and characters had been taken. Um, so there were, there was a certain type of character I wanted. So it was a very small window because I wanted them to be characters that would be very distasteful to be around to the rest of Krakoa because of um, what they had done in the past, you know, like, like, uh, gray crow is, is the perfect example An empath. Mm -hmm. These are characters that have that blood on their hands that are antisocial. I guess that's the way to say it. They had to be antisocial and, you know, but I thought like Omega red, what a perfect character, you know, to show that Krakoa has to grapple with these characters that do not fit in and are unpleasant to be around. Yeah. But that, but you know, Ben Percy had like an incredible story already mapped out. Um, so it was a little bit of a mixture of me, like grabbing for things, getting my hands slapped. <laughs> and then, 
And then like with Nanny and Orphan Maker, it was like, hey, I want I want these two. And Jordan was like, uh, <laughs> we can't put Nanny and Orphan Maker on a cover. I'm sorry. And but but slowly but surely I won him over on them. And then speaking of covers, it's like, well, who is going to be on the cover? Well, Psylocke's available. And then, well, does she make sense? Well, you know, she she's got blood on her hands. She doesn't really make sense as, as antisocial though, but she does make sense as someone who has a foot in maybe both the worlds who could be sort of a, a caretaker of these characters or a principal basically. And, and then with Havoc, again, I've always loved Havoc. There's the Inferno stuff. Yeah. But does he really make sense? But then you look at his history and he's got a lot of trauma. He was a villain for a while because of the Axis stuff. And maybe if we showed that that stuff was like creeping back on him, we could justify putting him on. And then I think it was Hickman who said, uh, yes, Mr. Sinister should run this thing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. And then before you knew it, I had a team that I just absolutely adored, you know, which, which is my job as the writer of the book, you know, is to adore these characters, but it wasn't hard with this group. It's so obvious you adore these characters. And I think you've taken Peter and Nanny and made them fan favorites. So I, I have a couple of contemporaries that kind of spitball, you know, ideas and questions with. And when I said I was going to be speaking with you, literally two of the people I speak with on a regular basis. One of them is Chris from Planet X-Men on Instagram. He was here like, ask him about Nanny and Peter. <laughs> ask him all these questions about Nanny and Peter. I'm like, I'm like I can't do the entire interview about that. <laughs> yeah. But so how does it feel that you've created a new fan base for these characters? It feels great. It feels... I, I think something that I, I think, and, and these are ideas that I've kind of come to over the last couple of years, but it seems like there's something very special. If you, if you love something, passing that love onto someone else is like yeah. such a special thing to do in, in this job um, in our, you know, it all, it, it, I think it doesn't matter how much the readers care about a character as much as how much the writer and the artist care about the character. Because if they love those characters, it will come through. And I think that's infectious. And with Nanny and Orphan Maker, they're just another duo of characters that hit me at the right time and really took my imagination when I was younger. Like Orphan Maker looked so cool. He looked like this badass sort of iron, evil Iron Man type character, but then he talked like a child and you're just instantly like, what is going on there? And I think that is the, for me, that is the, my favorite question and my, my favorite feeling when I'm doing research is when, when you see something and you're like, wait, what is going on there? Like what made these characters do that? How did they get there? And then you just dig in, you just start asking those questions. Other characters that you've brought back, which, by the way, sidebar, you kind of have a knack for bringing back characters who have been MIA for a while. You did that with Doug, with Legion, with Maddie, with, you know, the team on Hellions. 
is that deliberate or has it just kind of worked out that way for you? I, I think there's something deliberate about it where, you know, with Legion and new mutants, I just knew that that was a big part of new mutants mythos and a big part of X-Men mythos. So when I saw an opportunity or that they hadn't been used for a while, it's like, Oh shit. Yes. I want to be the person that gets to bring them back, you know, and sort of like polish them up and put them on the stage again. I don't know why that feels good. Maybe there's like a selfish thing where like you want to make your mark, you know? And I, but I think there's also a thing where you just want to play with the important toys. Yeah, and you also brought back Doug Ramsey in such a really interesting way. And listeners, you know I'm a huge Doug Ramsey stan, and this is why. Because when he came back in Necrotia, his power set was so different than what we had seen before. He could read architecture, right? Like something of that scene where he's coming in uh, during Necrotia with his team, with Celine's team, and he can read the actual building structure. But one of the most tender moments, and again, it goes back to trauma, was when he went up to Magma, and Magma did not want mm. anything to do with him. But he's here like, I created a language specifically for you. And he just whispers something in her ear, and that's it. She's fine. And that was a moment I fell in love with Doug. Yeah, that I love that moment. Too, which sounds gross to say, but I'm just like, <laughs> I, I <laughs> it's a great moment between. That two was one of my friends. favorite moments. Yeah, yeah, it was just so wonderful, and and again, it's a testament to your writing. I'm sorry, I can like gush all freaking night about how much I love your writing. I'm sorry, I'm not complaining. <laughs> so you did mention in an interview recently that. You didn't know that New Mutants had landed as well as it did until like a decade later. Yeah, yeah. Asking you about that. Is it because the internet just wasn't what it was today? Do you think social media has played a role in being able to like solicit feedback once things are published? Yeah. I mean, because Twitter was around back then, but I mean, I don't know what has, if it's comic fans in general, but I think X Twitter is like a very, very vibrant community. Like, I'm sorry. No, it's, which, <laughs> for me, for a, for a writer, uh, an obsessed writer, you know, and it's good and bad, you know, but the, everyone's so passionate now and you get so much more feedback. And yes, like, I just feel like when those new mutant issues would come out, I could find maybe one or two reviews about it when it came out and the, and most of the reviews were just like, Hey, this is decent. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, yes, this is a comic <laughs> where a story is taking place. And so, yeah, it just didn't feel like it was hitting, you know, and that's the thing with, with this business, you just always have to do your best work and just hope that it connects, you know? And I just, it was, it, I, I have to be honest that it was a little discouraging because I didn't think it had connected. I thought that like, okay, you're, you're, you're getting better. You're getting better at connecting. And, and, you, and I did feel like I got better as a writer writing New Mutants, but I wasn't quite there yet. You know, I hadn't quite learned how to connect. 
Um, so it really does mean a lot to see that that story 10 years later seems to, to be around or it seems to be in people's headspace or at the very least part of those characters' story that people talk about. You said that writing comics was the first time you got a paycheck. What was that like, writing something that you were so passionate about and holding that check in your hands? And then what did you spend it on? And then what did you spend it on? Man, I'm sure. I, I mean, I, I guarantee you I spent it poorly. But <laughs> I, pro- I was probably paying bills or, or you know, paying back <laughs> money with it. But it was a very special thing. But I was also very young. <laughs> and like, I don't know if you know how I got into comics, but I was, I was just an idiot in college. And me and my friends would make, used to make like dumb, funny videos. And Wizard Magazine had a video making contest. And so I entered that with my friends. I had a friend that looked like the Incredible Hulk. We painted him green and did a, a short film. Calling it a film is a <laughs> gross misrepresentation of what it was. <laughs> but we made a, a funny video about the Hulk losing his job. So he had to be like a caddy and a short order cook. And That's he, his life ends up going off the rails. That won a wizard contest. I won that contest two years in a row the second year. Went to Wizard World. There was an award show. Axel Alonso saw the video and like saw the speech that I gave and offered me the chance to write a comic book, like a, a Spider-Man's Tangled Web number 12. So a Spider-Man comic book when I was like, I think I was 23. Wow. Um, so I was just out of college. And so that was very special, felt very cool. But I also felt very, very overwhelmed and very much like do i know how to do this like what, <laughs> what and when you're a big comic fan you care so much about doing a good job like i was there was not a part of me that wanted to have fun and just see where my muse took me like there was a lot of pressure i put on myself like this has got to be good you are uh getting a chance to write for these characters you've loved your whole life yeah um so it's been a long, long journey getting to a point where I'm having fun writing. And I love that origin story because I feel that so many folks that we've spoken to have similar stories. And I happen to have worked at Marvel as well. And I, I worked with Axel on a couple of things. And he's a genuinely nice guy. And yeah. I just, I love that back in the day, the comic book community was very tight. People were like lifting each other up. It's so different now. I mean, Mm -hmm. I haven't worked in comics in in a minute, but the industry is so different now. It's so hard to break in or it's so hard to like get your, your voice elevated, even if you go to these conventions. Yeah. 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 It's so hard. And it's so hard when people ask me advice on how to break in because everyone's just got such a different story. Um, and you know, but you meet all types, man. You meet all types of writers. You meet like that first convention I went to, I met, I was, I met and was hanging out with Robert Kirkman when all he had was like his battle Pope stuff that he had like, had just 
willed into existence with his own determination. Like, like that was a guy that was going to make comics, whether someone told him he could make them or not. Like, I have no doubt that if his comics never sold more than 5,000 copies each, he would still be doing them. I, I, I don't, th I think that's what he does. You know, he's unstoppable. Well, Bendis had a similar story too. He used to like photocopy his comics, staple them himself and just, you know, mm -hmm. whatever local comic book seller. I always say this to people too, where there's a will, there is definitely a way and you will create yeah. your own opportunities as long as you are willing to go through with your passion and actually yep. kick it up to the next level. Let me ask you, what do you think as an ex writer you've brought to the table? that no other writer has done before. <laughs> Sorry. No. Well, I don't know if I've done anything wholly original, <laughs> but I do think that I have brought, or I've tried to, I've tried, this is a very hard question. I've tried to bring an affection for characters that are hard to love or have really uh, hard personalities to enjoy and, and tried, tried my best to show that like, if you meet an asshole, you're probably meeting a very hurt person underneath all of it, which is very hard to accept sometimes. I think it's very easy I still do it. It's, it's very easy to write people off and say, oh, that's a piece of shit. Oh, that's a bad person, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And that's usually not true. What you're usually looking at is someone who's very hurt or their, um, their trauma process or their defense mechanisms are, are unsavory to you. And so I'm just I'm trying to blast these unlikable characters with as much love as possible and see what's under there. I, I love that response because I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I think some of the reasons why a character like Emma Frost, for example, does so well is because you can write her off as an asshole or a bitch, uh -huh. but she's actually one of the most deep feeling, caring teachers yeah. for mutants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she is a teacher first and I just, I love that approach that you have. Yeah. Characters. And that's why someone like Empath, you're like, what a jerk, but you're like, oh shit, there is something yeah. brewing underneath there. And yeah, same with yeah. Alex, same with Psylocke. And I think that's also why Nanny and Peter have resonated so much because not only are they a little off-putting to, you know, other characters, but as a reader, you have the gift of seeing them in a very intimate moments yeah. and seeing their yeah. relationship together and that uh, dependency they have. Ah, oh, that yeah, and those relationships are so compelling because they can get so weird. Those those dependent relationships, you know, and 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 again, it's just like think, seeing behaviors like that and saying, "Oh, that's not just a piece. Th those characters aren't just pieces of shit." Oh, what happened to these poor characters? That that is how they have chosen to live their lives and how that behavior makes them feel safe. That's how they feel like they have to act in order to move through the world, you know, that and starting to peel that back. That's very uh, compelling to me. 
Yeah. And I'm also thinking of Madeline and Havoc and that relationship mm-hmm. you've kind of flushed out, which makes so much sense thinking of Inferno and then also thinking of, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on the book? Mutant X. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and bringing that to the forefront and seeing how Alex operates and his empathy and sort of soft spot for Madeline. And, you know, and there's all sorts of stuff mixed into that. Like the fact that he is his big brother's ex-wife, you know, and that, oh. you know, and you always, I think, you know, That's feel a little drama. bit of inferiority to your big brother, especially if your big brother was, was Cyclops, you know? And yeah, there's just so much in the stew there. And that's what I have to give so much props to Claremont for. He added so many ingredients to the stew because he did, he, you, you do feel that he deeply felt all of those characters trauma, like those scenes from around Inferno when Madeline Pryor sees herself as uh, Jean Grey, like taking her body parts off until she's a mannequin who you know, that is like, even reading that as an adult, I was like, oh, that hits hard. Like that is, I think a lot of people can relate to those feelings. That hits really hard. We did a Justice for Maddie episode a couple of weeks ago. It ended up being three hours. <laughs> it was supposed to be a 45 minute discussion. It ended up being three hours. But the one scene everyone talked about was that scene with Maddie where, you know, those parts are being removed of her face and she's just a blank mannequin. So how is it writing a very flamboyant, crazy, over-the-top <laughs> sinister? It must be the best thing ever. Uh, it, it is the best. And um, just having that flamboyant version that Kieran created and that Hickman leaned into. And uh, the first issue before I started writing it, I think it was one of Hickman's, because he had read my outline and, and just one of his notes was, was Zeb, Mr. Sinister has to chew the scenery in every single scene <laughs> that he's in. And he, he just underlined it, chew it. And I was like, okay. And so I think the first time we see Sinister is when, <laughs> when he says something like to, uh, to the guy sitting next to him, he's like, are your, are, are your shoulder pads getting bigger? <laughs> If you want to do this, I'll be on your ass every step of the way, man. You are not going, you're not, you know, my shoulder ornamentation will not be undone. And I was kind of like, well, let's see where the ceiling is here. Let's see if this is too crazy. And nobody said anything. So you just keep making him more flamboyant, which has made him so fun to write and so lovable, even though he's such a uh, bad character like so he does <laughs> such bad bad things but he's so level that that was such a gift of the x office and I, I mean i'm so glad i get to do sinister stuff well you know who's also chewing the scenery arcade yeah <laughs> this last <laughs> issue yeah. how is it like how, how do you okay what i'm trying to ask what i'm trying to formulate in my head is a question of how do you differentiate arcade and sinister so well even though they're both over the top characters who steal the scene and yet here they are and i love the scene when sinister's like no 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 i'll talk i'll give you the clones and arcade's like no actually i still want to torture you like, yeah he's here yeah. like this chucky doll's attacking me <laughs> <laughs> sorry 
<laughs> it's so ridiculous. I, you know, that was a, that was definitely a concern when I started writing arcade because you do want them to be different. And this, this is going to sound like really out there and masturbatory, but what I try to do when I'm like, like thinking of arcades voice, what I try to do is just think about how arcade as a character and seeing that big toothy grin as he's torturing people (laughs) How that, how that makes me feel, you know, like what, what's, what, what's like the impression I get from just what I've absorbed about arcade. And can I somehow turn that into a voice? And so I think if I can do that, if you effectively do that, then the voice rings true to other people that have grown up seeing that character do things and seeing that face. And then I don't, it somehow, and I couldn't even explain to you how it's a different voice, but it does feel different to me. You know, it feels like it's a different flavor of this, which is kind of similar. It's like this weird, self-absorbed, homicidal insanity. (laughs) But in my head, at least in my feelings, it at least feels like a different temperature or color than the sinister stuff. It certainly does. And that's why it works so well. It's kind of like the Freddy versus Jason of X-Men right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Zeb, we've come to the part of the interview where I'm going to just be a thirsty X-Fan and be like, can you tease us on some things? You can feel free to pass if you want. I don't want to get anyone no. in trouble. But... Well... Can I, yeah. I, I have a couple. What, what can you yeah. tease us about Hellions? Okay, about Hellions. And I just, I, <laughs> there's stuff. <laughs> there's I just stuff. don't, I don't want to give any of it away. I really don't. And I've never been this type of guy. No, it is totally. But let's talk about the Hellfire Gala. Because. Oh, please. Please. I do think that I am. I, I just could not be more excited about this thing. This was a, uh, an idea that Jerry uh, Duggan had that kind of gets filtered through the, the really special way that X-Men comics are being written right now, which is this, this X slack that we have where all oh. the writers are on there just constantly churning stories and ideas with each other and a it has been very special to me during the pandemic to just be having this sort of social structure and then b just seeing these things take on a life of their own and jerry just having this idea of oh there's going to be this event if anyone else wants to be involved in it they can and i don't know what i can tease but just seeing Suddenly the artists are contributing. The editors are being like, okay, well, this stuff you want to do is much more work for us, but let's do it. You know, and and then it's just like in the last couple of weeks, you start seeing art coming in and you start seeing what everyone has put together. And that's when I made that tweet where where I was saying that like people aren't ready for this because I thought when Jerry pitched it that it was a good idea. 
and something that I would like to be involved in. And now I'm thinking that Jerry deserves like a massive raise and might be a genius because <laughs> I think, I think it's going to make such a big splash. I, I'm speechless because we are so excited for the Hellfire Gala. I, I will say that I think that there are, it is a very interesting thing where people get to, to choose how they play in that world, mm -hmm. which is very fun. Um, but it goes up to 10 on the Met Gala of it. And then mm -hmm. we go a couple notches past 10. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I can say that's about it, that's that. That's it. That's it. That's, that's it. All no, I can no. say about that. But if you're into that shit, <laughs> you are going, you are going to lose your mind. All I'm, I will say is the looks, the looks. I am so excited for it. You don't have to say anything else. I'm just going to babble. I have done um, anticipation posts of what people are going to be wearing. I have <laughs> Rogan Gambit as Justin and Brittany in the matching denim. Emma, of course, is going to wear something beautiful and grand. But then Jean will have a dress from like an outlet in Orlando. Because <laughs> I love my girl Jean. I am a huge Jean stan. But so I'm letting you know that everyone in the X community is so excited for what you guys are doing. And I love, love that Jerry came with the idea and everything. Yeah. And what I do love about it is that it will deliver like people <laughs> that are excited about it. And for the reasons they're excited, it's, it, it is going to deliver on all of those things. I love that things. so much. Is there anyone in the fashion community that's caught wind of what you guys are doing? Like has Anna Wintour been like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think so, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, af, you know, after a few of these things come out, if that doesn't happen. Thank you for getting back to me on, on Twitter. That was very kind of, of you. Of course. Zeb, thank you so much for your time tonight. Where can fans connect with you? Well, I've got a Twitter at Zeb Wells, and that's about it. And you're great. Uh, you respond to you responded to all my memes of being a Maddie Stan. <laughs> I'm sorry for spamming you with them. I literally have nothing to do at three in the morning with my insomnia. <laughs> oh, I love I love those memes. Those are fantastic. All right, guys. I am the Uncanny Dayspring signing off. <laughs>